Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. I'm really excited to welcome Brody Merrill to the Philacrosophy podcast. Brody is known as one of the greatest defensive players in both indoor and outdoor lacrosse of all time. Uh, grew up in Orangeville, Ontario, played in the MLL, in the NLL, and believe it or not, was defensive player of the year in the MLL from 06 through 2011, has been defensive player of the year in the NLL, has been transition player of the year in the NLL multiple times, has played on a lot of different teams, graduate of Georgetown um, University where he was a two-time first-team All-American, went to the Salisbury School, and grew up in Orangeville, Ontario. Uh, Brody, welcome to the show. Really fired up to have you on board. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Been looking forward to this. I uh, I remember my first foray into recruiting. I was a young coach at the University of Denver, and I went, my, my wife's from Buffalo. And I think I may have told you this before, but I went up to watch Orangeville out at St. Catharines, and I, I think it was the OLA semifinals. It was an overtime game. And I remember someone I was seeing this, like, 6'4 lefty playing top center on the power play, and someone was like, oh, yeah, that kid uh, – He's going to Georgetown, and he's a pole. And I'm like, what? He's a pole? He would score 45 goals for us. So, uh, anyways, it's, uh, it's amazing. You know, you blink an eye 20 years ago. by You're still playing and, uh, um, you, you know, not playing top center on the power play anymore. But uh, those are some good days, eh? Yeah, it was. It was um, really an exciting time, actually, for me. And just getting, uh, you know, um, at that time, uh, kind of finding myself as a lacrosse player and just kind of starting my field lacrosse journey. And uh, so, yeah, it was, um, as you say, man, time does does fly and it doesn't seem that long ago. But, um, yeah, I've been fortunate to, to have uh, a lot of pretty uh, rich experiences in the game. Yeah, unbelievable. The Philacrosophy podcast is made possible in part by the JM3 video assessment tool. There is no question that video is a critical part to player development. One way or another, your son or daughter must utilize video to learn their game and the game. To learn more, see video testimonials, or register, go to www.jm3video.com today. Well, um, I love kicking off the discussions with guests uh, talking about their lacrosse journey. And um, I would love to hear about, you know, what it was like growing up um, and maybe the other sports that you played that impacted your lacrosse along the way up in Orangeville, Ontario. And then, you know, how you got recruited to Salisbury and how it worked out with Georgetown and, and kind of this combination of box and field that you've really um, come to be like a prototypical player that can do both. Yeah, um, so my parents are both um, ha had sport background and were phys ed teachers and, and um, you know, so sport was always a big part of my upbringing and really anything and everything, you know, and, and uh, we would, my brother, who's uh, two years older than I am, um, we would, we would spend, you know, countless hours uh, playing various backyard games and, and um we grew up uh, in a suburb of Montreal. Uh, my mom's from Prince Edward Island. My dad uh, is from Montreal. They met um, in uh, in university at University of New Brunswick, and uh, uh, my dad played football there, and my mom uh, gymnastics and basketball, and and so um, yeah, it was just uh, it. it uh, so it was part of my kind of DNA, I guess, and and uh, right around the time. Um, it was Quebec was actually uh, the province of Quebec. There was some threat of uh, Quebec separating from Canada. And so like a lot of Quebecers, we migrated um, west to Ontario and uh, somewhat randomly fell on Orangeville. Orangeville was a, and still is a small town, but at, at that time it was kind of a smaller country town and uh, an hour north of Toronto. And, and um, you know, my brother and I 
you know, hockey is, is really, I'm not exaggerating. It's, it feels like a religion in Montreal and, uh, and, and most of Canada. Um, but, uh, you know, when we moved to, uh, to Orangeville, that was, um, that was my introduction to my peer group, right through, uh, and that's what I love about sport is that you kind of instantly, uh, have like a support system. And, and, um, so a lot of my, uh, peers, um, were playing lacrosse in Orangeville, Orangeville, for those that don't know is, a, is uh, lacrosse is a very big part of the, the fabric of the community. And so, uh, I, I remember, you know, my parents being phys ed teachers, we always had, uh, you know, kind of those recreational um, lacrosse sticks kicking around the garage, but I didn't really know much about the sport. And, uh, you know, but um, it was really, uh, you know, it was like a perfect uh, fit, you know, like um, with our hockey background, I played, you know, soccer, baseball pretty competitively in Montreal and uh, try to continue playing those other sports, but uh, in, in Orangeville, but uh it's it's like you uh not many people play those you know i remember um kind of going from soccer practice to lacrosse practice still with my my soccer shin pads on and and kind of getting getting a look from some of my teammates like why are you still playing soccer what are you doing playing soccer this is a this is a lacrosse town and so um yeah it it, uh, it didn't take long to really um you know kind of uh, become immersed within the game and and uh, you know some of my earliest memories is watching the junior a lacrosse team and at that time and still to this day it was like a powerhouse and uh, you know a winning Minto Cups and for a small town to compete at that level was uh, you know was really fun to watch a really unique uh, culture that um, that I really you know gravitated towards and and uh, became a you know would continue to be a big impact on my career it is uh, orangeville is a pretty special place everyone seems to who's from there loves it and what a lot of the listeners may not realize is that you know each of these small towns you know or bigger towns depending on but you know you got st Catharines and whitby and peterborough and all these towns that are lacrosse centers you know it's not that different than greenwich or new canaan it's just kids playing youth lacrosse the difference is, is that all the, they're just producing these world-class players. And I, I went back and looked up, you know, because I, I was thinking back to that very game that I was referring to earlier in the show here when I went to the Orangeville-St. Catharines game. And there must be 20 guys that are pros, and, and, and a lot of them that were, like, all pro. Um, you know, how is it that, that Orangeville and St. Catharines, these small towns, you know, small programs – compared to other programs out there are, are just pumping out so many world-class players. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's interesting to examine. I think that, um, you know, when I look even at Orangeville to this day and a lot of those, um, many of those centers, whether it be, yeah, would be Six Nations, um, Peterborough, Oakville now, you see, you just kind of look down uh, at who's coaching and it's a, a lot of them uh, many of the coaches have experience at the highest levels of the game and and but have a real deep care and connection for um, for their town and their lacrosse um, community and and so you have great coach I remember at very at a very young age having you know like professional level coaches you know like um uh, Shane the Sanderson family in Orangeville was really really the catalyst of of uh, lacrosse in Orangeville and there it's a, it's a pretty amazing family and I've been influenced you know uh, uh, by by so many of them like uh, in at different stages of my career and and uh, so my one of my earliest coaches was Shane Sanderson who's one of the younger Sanderson brothers and uh, he, he coached professionally in the NLL and uh, he was one of my first coaches you know at, at a very young age and uh, and so I look at every level as I progressed, uh, the quality of coaching and how serious um, the coaches uh, took it. And, and, and also there was, a, there was a kind of a Northman way of doing things. You know, there was a really clear, um, you know, culture and identity to the, uh, to the town and the, and the organization uh, from the junior A program right down to the youngest ages of the game. And, and so, um, that's why you see it. I mean, that's why, you know, it's uh, a small town like Orangeville produces so many high level lacrosse players. I think it really started 
with the culture that the Sanderson family um, created, and then you have all these these players that are a product of that system come back. You know, a big part of that is coming back and coaching, and and uh, you know, uh, you know, there was one there was one minor team uh, two years ago that I think went undefeated, and I'm looking at the coaching staff. It's it's Josh Sanderson. He's yeah. got a, he's got a son on the team, Rusty Kruger, and uh, and Bruce Cod, and all three of them of which are are coaches in the NLL. You know, and so yeah, that's that's pretty neat, and and we're pretty fortunate to you know to have that kind of those kind of influences in your in your life at that stage. Did you uh, did you win a Mitchell Cup? Uh, it, it's a, it's a sore subject. <laughs> uh, we, um, I still go back to it. And, uh, I was actually, uh, having dinner with one of your, uh, former players, Jeff Snyder. Yeah. Uh, we were playing in Calgary recently and, um, you know, in 2000, it was probably the best team that I've been a part of. It was, um, you know, a lot of guys that had grown up, uh, playing with each other, a couple of siblings on the team. And it really felt like a, you know, a close knit family. And, we made it to the mental cup finals um in 2000 and and lost to to jeff's team in in six games in a great series that was the closest i got um we was always kind of in the mix for it but we had uh um run into some good st catherine teams uh at that time and and uh so it um that was that that's one that always kind of i look back on always wish i had had that opportunity but, but came close and had some some great experiences along the way. Now, how did you get, how did you end up at Salisbury? Uh, and was Bobby Wynn the head coach then when you got there? Uh, no, it was somewhat, uh, you know, so another, another member of the Sanderson family, uh, Chris Sanderson, um, he, uh, so he was really the first person from Orangeville that I had known that, that gone down to play high level collegiate lacrosse. He went to UVA and, uh, you know, he would come back and really that was the first introduction of field lacrosse. He would come back and run some field lacrosse camps with some local um, you know, Orangeville guys. And, and he would bring some some his uh, his teammates from UVA. And, and um, so my best friend and I, Kyle Miller, um, we that was kind of our, our introduction. And Chris kind of took us under his wing a little bit. His his wife, uh, uh, Brogan, uh, went to. Um, I think her brother went to Deerfield. And so he, he knew of the New England scene. And uh, he had he had met uh, a guy by the name of Brian Rogers. I'm not sure if you know Brian. Oh, I know Brian Rogers. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, he, I just forgot. You know, it's been a while. But, yeah. Brian Rogers. Yeah. He, he's – yeah, he was, uh, he, he was a, the, the coach at Salisbury at the time. And, and yeah. so the connection through um, – uh, through Chris and, and Brian, I think they had met at a World Games. Brian had went to Cornell, and and uh, and so um, I remember him and a guy by the name of Matt Corkery. He was a hockey coach there. They came up and watched me play hockey, uh, and um, you know, so my friend uh, uh, Kyle and I, um, Kyle Miller and I, went down together, and it was man, it was eye opening. You know, we hadn't hadn't known anything about that whole league and the you know the, the those schools and playing and at, at the Tafts and the Deerfields and those type of schools was uh, was a pretty amazing it, it was a life-changing experience for me and, and uh, the funny story on that is Brian Rogers so he he you know recruited me to go to Salisbury and I was my last practice of the summer uh, or one of my last practices of the summer uh, heading into my first year at Salisbury, uh, Chris was watching practice and I, I, you know, ran into him after practice. And he said, Hey, Hey bro, do you remember, uh, did you, uh, did you hear, uh, what happened with Brian? He, he, uh, he left Salisbury and he's, uh, he's going to Georgetown. He's going to coach at Georgetown. And I was, I was devastated at the time. And, and cause we had a really good connection with Brian and, and uh, but went there and, and had uh, coach Don Shea and he was a, he's a great coach was a big influence on on me and and so it was it was all good at uh, it worked out and then uh, and then of course uh, Brian went off to Georgetown and recruited me at, at uh, when I was at Salisbury and it was almost the same I feel like it was the same day uh, like the same area in the arena um the day I, before I left to go down to Georgetown I saw Chris he's like did you hear about Brian <laughs> and, uh, I said 
no, what, what's up? And uh, oh, he's 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 uh, taking took the uh, coaching job at Hobart, and uh, so here's a guy that had such a big impact and recruited me, you know, and opened up these uh, pretty um, you know important doors for me and and i never got the, the chance to play play for him but uh it's fine we, we've stayed in touch to this to this day and, and uh so always th thankful to brian but uh yeah kind of a funny uh funny how life works sometimes that way hey how old were you when you first picked up a pole so it, it was later um it's it's funny because i look at a lot of um you talk to a lot of the long stick middies some of the, the long stick, the, the top long stick middies in the game, guys like Scott Ratliff and, you know, Kyle Sweeney and, you know, uh, Kyle Hartzell. These are guys that really picked up the pole late. And so I think that was a big key for me as I was able to establish, you know, uh, a good foundation with my stick skills. Um, and I didn't really, so it was the U19 team in 1999, um, one that actually Chris was coaching He's assistant coach. Um, and there was just, at that time, there was no polls. There, there was really no polls competing for that position. So I knew I, but we, there was, you know, incredible depth at attack and midfield. And uh, so I was like, just kind of doing the math and, you know, and I was always more of a defensive minded player in box. And, yeah. and so um, that was my best chance to make that team. And, and uh, so it was, uh, that was my first experience playing with a pole and, and it was a uh, uh, trial by fire. Like I, I remember playing against uh, matching up with Connor Gill and, 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 uh, you know, Kevin Cassis was on that team, BJ Prager. Um, these were, uh, you know, guys that had at least one or two years of uh, collegiate experience. I think, I think Connor Gill had just won the, the uh, national championship. And uh, so it was pretty ugly for me at that time. I was uh you know, I, I struggled a little bit, but at least it gave me, you know, um, a bit of a, you know, some some very valuable experience. And, and watching, I'm trying to think of some of the defensemen on that team. Brian Farrell was a U, UMass guy. You might remember him, big defenseman. He was, uh, um, you know, kind of the best defenseman in that tournament. It's like you start watching and, okay, you get a sense of what level you need to be at to, to be able to to play, you know, higher level Division One lacrosse. So you were what, like 16 or 17 when you first picked up a pole? Yeah, yeah, I was 16 or 17. That's right. Um, I mean, it's amazing because I, I see little kids with long poles. And I always cringe because I just don't think you can be, you will not develop as quickly or as, as, as far, I don't think, by playing with a long pole that's way over your head. Um, and I'm sure that there's exceptions to that statement. But generally speaking, the long pole becomes an impediment for both sides of the ball. And I look at myself, I was an attackman. I could pick up a pole and I had nasty yeah. checks because I got great stick skills. And, and it's kind of the same thing. I'm sure with you, you, you picked it up and you were able to handle it really quickly and easily. Yeah. I mean, that's what I find even at the Hill, like we, every year, uh, two or three players will just, you know, um, uh, go over and just test it out with them. And it doesn't take, it really doesn't take long. You know, and I find it's much easier to do it that way where, you know, you, you have a good foundation with your stick. You have a level of confidence handling the ball and and uh, really doesn't. I remember I remember Randy stats at a, at a young age, like, you know, one of the top offensive players in the game. He was an amazing. You put a pole in his hand. Jeff Teat, the same thing. We used yeah. to use him with a pole at times at the hill just because it was, you know, just the way he moved and his instinct and his ability to pick off passes and. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think it's, it's, it's really, and I, you know, just, just sheer touches. I think we, yeah. I, I, you know, I see that at younger ages too, um, where it's just a little bit premature to, to, to use a pole. And if it's, and if you are, I mean, you just, you got to make sure it's proportional to, you know, your body, you know, like I, it's, um, and making sure that, you know, you're able to handle the ball comf comfortably. And I mean, one of the things that was fun for me earlier, I mean, the nature of the game has changed. You don't see as many takeaway checks, but that was one of the things that I really loved um, when it uh, attracted me to the, uh, the pole position is kind of learning some of these cool che checks with your, uh, with your long pole. So I do think they're eventually you need to, 
you know, um, has some experience with that. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. It's funny. So I coached um, Scott Ratliff. You just referred to him a couple minutes ago. I coached him with the Atlanta Blaze a couple summers ago, and and Scott is, you know, he's five eleven. You know, great athlete. Not not he's a little undersized, really, for a pole. And um, he was actually playing a fair amount of offense for us. And that was when I was coaching with Hunts, right? Who we're gonna have to talk about in a minute here. But uh, I was like, you know, I was like, Rat, have you ever thought about chopping your stick down a little bit? He's like, no, not really. I was like, well, you know, think about Brody Merrill. He's like six four. His pole goes up to his nose or his teeth or something around there. Your your pole's over your head. Yeah. You know, think about like the fact that you know, if you were six four, what your stick would be like and how much better you'd handle it. And he's like, you know, maybe I'll try it. And he, he chopped down, you know, a little bit. He kind of liked it. And each week he chopped down a little bit more. And next thing you know, he was using a stick that was, you know, a little bit more up to his eyes or his nose rather than, you know, over his head. And um, I just think that that is like, to me, it is like, you know, when you look at you as the prototypical pole and how long your pole is, I don't know if you wish you had a pole that was over your head, but I'm guessing you like the length of it and it allows you to do everything from play great defense to handle the ball to take the ball away. Well, it's been, uh, yeah, it's a good point, actually. I've thought about that. And you even look at, um, you know, other sports, look at hockey, look, you know, you're not going to have Sidney Crosby use the same uh, stick that Zidane Chara does, right? And so it's a good point. I've actually, that's the way I started. I, 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 um, I was really uncomfortable at, at you know, when I first picked up a long pole and I cut it down, I remember actually um, Coach Eric, when he was uh, recruiting me, I had a bit of a fear about, you know, like going to a full long pole because he's using a full stick there. It doesn't look, it doesn't look, you know, like a full stick. And I'm like, yeah, you know, yeah, it is. And, and uh, so I eventually made the transition there, but it's, yeah, I think it's a good point. One that you, need to look at how much are you really giving up defensively, you know, by taking a few inches off, off your pole. And, and uh, so, yeah, I would agree with that. So um, you end up going to Georgetown um, playing for, you know, one of the most loved, beloved coaches of all time, the coach Yurik. Tell us a little bit about um, that experience. And, and um, you know, you guys had it, you guys had some great seasons. Give us a little bit of a rundown on some of those uh, experiences. Yeah, it, it gives you, um, you know, I think time gives you that perspective um, and just how lucky we were to, to be able to play for Coach Eric. Um, he's just, uh, you know, as I, you kind of think of, um, I, I, you know, I think of him almost every day that I coach and, you know, just as kind of a, that moral compass, you know, he had, he had such a way about him um, where he would, you know, he, he would make, help you stay in that, you know, uh, healthy mindset, you know, by providing good per perspective. He was a very humble guy, um, you know, very witty guy and, and yeah. made it fun. He was one of the, he, you know, he, he would have great presence. He, he would definitely, you know, command the respect of the team. But, he, you know, very rarely, you know, would he ever yell or, you know, uh, demean or, um, it, it was, uh, you know, we, we always joke, you'd, you'd see it maybe once or twice a year, the time when you would, you would know he was mad or you can see his, his lip quivering a little bit. And, uh, but he, uh, he's very much like a father figure to, you know, was a father figure within that program and had, had such the, uh, the utmost respect to all his players and made it fun, you know, like he, um, you know, he, he uh, just a salt of the earth guy. And, and uh, we, we, you know, within the group, you have um, these Yurkisms, right? Like he, he'd have his, uh, his lines. Uh, you know, one of the things I'd say about Coach Yu is that he had, he had this way where after a bad loss, he would, he would you know, um, have a way of making you feel, you know, better about yourself and the team. And then, um, and then, you know, if you were getting complacent or if there was times where, you, you know, he needed more from you, he had a way of, of uh, bringing that out as well. So, um, you know, it was, you know, great. it was a great experience. I felt really, you know, I think we all felt really lucky to play for him. Yeah, very cool. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Coaches Training Program. 
If you are a coach interested in sharpening your saw, like so many of the guests on the show, you are going to love the content in this program. Go to www.jm3coaches.com for more information. And so from there, you go into the pro ranks. You were, uh, I was just reading this, you know, when I was reviewing the bio before this call that you were rookie of the year in the MLL and the NLL. And who's the only guy I know that did the exact same thing you did and preceded you by one year at each rookie of the year was Ryan Boyle. So, and he's long gone from the league and you're still playing and you guys are both rookies of the year um, for each league. So uh, where did you start your career? You started in Baltimore, right? Was that the best field team you've ever been on or what? Yeah, well, it was, um, it's funny because at Georgetown, we, uh, we probably had come as close as you can to, to making a final four without making a final four. We, yeah, like, uh, Two, two of the four games um, we lost with under three seconds left. One was in, in overtime to Maryland and one to uh, that UVA team that, that won the national championship yeah. with Dylan Johnson. Yeah. Um, so it was, uh, I remember, you know, going to Baltimore and, and winning uh, was easier than I've ever experienced, you know, because it was uh, just such a dominant team with, um, you know, Gary Gate, Tom Marichek and Mike Powell was our attack unit and you'd have guys like uh you know josh sims and and sonky and uh, the, the middies that were you know uh, like josh at that time i thought was one of probably the best overall player in the game and paul canabine uh, facing off and then i had some great um like veteran defensemen to learn from too christian cook um who was really in the prime of his career was probably the best uh defenseman in the league at that time and then Sean Natalin uh who I became really, really close with and um you know Lee Zink as well you know these uh, so it was uh, and Trevor Tierney and it was it was a really fun group and it was really uh um a great learning experience and and uh, just I, I would kind of pinch myself every day um you know getting a you know, play with Gary Gate, and he drafted me. He was a player coach, which is uh, yeah. We'll wonder how that worked, but it worked. You know, like he was just um, such a you know, like a even keel guy. He had so much respect from all the players, and it just uh, it, it was a really fun experience. <laughs> okay, so what was it like to try to cover Mikey Powell, and how much did that help you? You know, get better at at learning how to play your angles. Yeah, for sure. That was, um, you know, we had crossed over. So we uh, he was a, a year ahead of me. So we, we, um, we played against each other for three years and, and he was kind of the bar, you know, like, um, and initially my first year there, Kyle Sweeney would guard him. And, uh, you know, that was watching those battles. And, and, uh, and then eventually I, I can remember, Guarding him one year, and it was a, a bit of a breakthrough for me because I I um, watched like so much film on him and, and tried to break him down, and and had this kind of you know, had this anxiousness about playing against him. And um, my strength really isn't you know kind of that one-on-one coverability. And so one of the first times I played against him, I really struggled against him, and he had a big day and. Um, and then we played him in the the tournament that year, and uh, I just kind of said, you know what, I, I'm gonna worry less about him and just just play kind of my my game, and and uh, you know, and it, it, you know that was a good lesson for me moving forward, and not not to overthink my matchup too much. I think that's that's common for defensemen. And I was actually talking to Jerry Byrne about this at, at Notre Dame. Is that he doesn't tell their matchups until right before the game. You know, which which I like, and and that because you can kind of overthink it, um, and uh, you know, and, and instead of uh, you know trying to adjust so much to your matchup, you know, y- you dictate, and uh, and so, but it, it was um, he was the quickest player. Him and Mark Millen were the two quickest players I've I've seen play, and and. Uh, you know, he was an amazing and getting to know him too and, and, and playing with them, kind of being rivals uh, in college and then playing with him that first year in Baltimore. Just a really, he, he's one of the most charismatic uh, people that I know. Just, you know, people just will gravitate to him. He's just a, got a really uh, nice way about him. And, and 
you know, I, part of me wonders what if, if he, if he could have kept going with it, but he, but I also respect the fact that he had done everything. He, he was at peace with who he was and, and what he had accomplished and, uh, you know, can kind of walk away on on his terms, and and I've gotten to know the the you know the Powell family really well, and they're all kind of that way. They just yeah, just um, you know, just really easy, fun people to be around. Um, and so yeah. I would love to have seen Mikey Powell play a, a a box career like Casey and Ryan did. I mean, yeah, he would have been so unbelievable in that game. Um, it was sort of built for him in a lot of ways. I mean, both games were, but. Yeah, he had um, people, and, and it's something I came to appreciate, like his skill level, like his stick skill. Like he had unbelievable athleticism, and he could break you down and could get really separation anytime he wanted it. But he had really nice touch. He had great hands. Yeah. And uh, I, I agree. You know, I, um, I, I always look at Casey as a bit of a combination between the two. Uh, like I played with Ryan for a number of years, one of my favorite teammates, he was more of a, you know, a bulldog and, you know, would, would barrel in on you and really intense. And, and you know, Casey, I remember playing against him for the first time in box. And he would, you know, when you grow up playing the game and then you see something totally different on the floor, right? Him doing things that he's just playing, you know, but it's it was totally unique to the game. And I, I see that a lot in Tom Schreiber now, you know, so it's uh, – yeah, it's it's you kind of ask what if, but in the same breath you're like, well, he, you know, he he, he was uh, he was pretty amazing, and kind of celebrate that. So, one of my uh, favorite all-time people we referred to earlier, and one of my mentors really as a coach is the late great Dave Huntley, and I'm sure he was a huge mentor for you too. He used to talk about you all time, was a huge fan, but just uh just one of the best guys ever because he cared about you as a person and he, you felt better. You know, he's one of those guys where you always felt better about yourself after hanging out with hunts. And at the same time, he was a ball buster that would keep you in line if you needed it. And he just had this amazing balance and way about him. We became friends, you know, 10 years before I coached with him. And then when I got to coach with him, you know, you get really tight with people. And I know, um, you know, you played for him and uh, over a lot of teams, maybe you can just uh, tell us some stories about hunts. Yeah, um, it was fun because in that, uh, again, meeting with Jeff Snyder, we had a, had some good stories going back and forth about hunts. And uh, so my, I didn't really know of of, uh, of Dave prior to playing uh, for him in Baltimore that first year in Baltimore. And uh, that we, we uh, really hit it off. You know, he had so that uh, after that summer was the World Games in 2006 where he was a coach uh, there as well. And um you know if you know him uh you know like he has so much time for you like I would uh, anyone you kind of laugh at the people that were you know new hunts that you, you get on the phone with them you'll you'll, you'll be talking for yeah. at least an hour you know <laughs> it's, and different theories and he was so you know it was so fun to, to talk and to, um you know like he, he had such a unique outlook and and but really kind and he he uh he had you know some similarities to coach you in some ways in that he had such great perspective on life and the game and that that whole balance and um you know was was uh really really family oriented and uh you know just uh you know it was really a kind of a rock, you know, to, for me and a mentor, especially as I got into coaching and, and even throughout my playing career, even though if, if he was coaching on other teams, uh, someone I can really lean on um, for great advice and, and just someone to talk to who always had great perspective on things. Yeah, he does. I, he was always as interested in you as he was interesting to listen to with his latest yeah. stuff, you know, and that's so special. Yeah. And he would literally like, sit down and talk to it didn't even matter i mean he loved talking lacrosse but he could talk to my wife about you know whatever wine i mean he was seemed to be like an expert on so many topics too and you know right. forever and just literally be just as happy with that as anything else so you know well, he had this uh like coaching he had this really even throughout the regular season he, he would get bored with things right in the regular season and like he it was sometimes to keep him fully engaged 
Um, but when the stakes were high, like we, you know, going through some world championships and, and, you know, at different playoffs and like, he was so sharp. He had, uh, you know, such a great mind for the game and, and, uh, but uh, you know, like, and some of his his theories, like, he was a he was a you know a big math guy, and he would have all these stats and and uh, you know all the all these different. Like, one of them was uh, I always love to to uh, um, to point out is he, he would he he always wanted to play five on six and have a player right on right on the uh, the end line defensively so if you missed any shot if you miss a net and he had all these he had all these all the math to back it up with shooting percentage and man down man up percentage it's, it's like Hans you you want us to play five on <laughs> you want us to play five on six and uh I don't think he ever I don't think he ever tried it but uh you know I, I that's what I loved about him he just just trying to he was you know, afraid man he would go for it he, with, with the blaze in fact I was like I was like, you know, Hunts, we should like we should run a single inverse sometimes and just let Rat. Because I saw this happen with like Hartzell or something. I was like, let Rat stand ten yards outside the two, let them sag in on our single invert, and then just kick it up to him and just let him shoot a two every once in a while. You know, like why not? Next thing you know, Rat's on defense, on offense, and he never came off the field for like the rest of the season. Oh, yeah. You remember that when basically Ratliff played on the first midfield line. Um, yeah. and, um, you know, maybe not the most efficient offense ever, but, uh, but, but I'll tell you what, we were getting destroyed on transition defense that year. And that, 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 that ended real quick. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know. I remember he, he did that a little bit with the U19 Canadian team too, uh, was with Adrian Sorichetti and, yeah. uh, he was a long pole at the time and yeah. named Greg Michelli that uh, were both really highly skilled guys. And so, yep. yeah, we think outside the box for sure that, that way. So. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, you are now playing with the expansion San Diego Seals, owned by um, Joe Sai, and the, your brother is the head coach, and Steve Govett is the GM, and you guys are – you're really crushing it. I mean, geez, for an expansion team, are you guys in first place right now? I mean, it seems like you guys are having an amazing year for anybody. Yeah, expansion yeah it, uh, it's been a pretty unique um, – opportunity and experience I I uh it, it kind of came on unexpectedly and and um you know given the timing it was uh, um you know I was an unrestricted free agent my brother had, had gotten the job um and uh you know we we've been attached at the hip um from uh since I can remember and so it was uh it was it was definitely um step outside the comfort zone and, and probably not mo not the most uh, rational decision I've made, but it was just kind of going for it. And, uh, you know, um, doing it together has been, has been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, and it's, it's a team like an, for an expansion team, what's neat about it. It's, it's, everyone's got a fresh start, right? Like it's, players that have either signed on like we're kind of we we have uh, like most expansion teams I guess we're, we're really old and really young yeah. and then the guys in between are guys that have been you know either released or unprotected or not maybe have something to prove and and so it uh, it definitely uh, makes for a fun dynamic that way and you kind of have that uh, you know us against the world type of mentality and and uh and then you get to do it in a city like San Diego and have such a great kind of support system in place with our team and our organization. And, and so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun so far. I uh, first got a chance to really watch Austin stats up close um, in the Minto cup in 2017. And he just dominated was MVP of the Minto cup. And I was just like, wow, this guy is, and I'd watched him on, on video and the man cup the year before when he was one of the best players on the floor, when they won the man cup. Um, but uh, this kid is, I mean, honestly, there's a lot of great players, but he is absolutely as special as they come. And he's just tough. And he's just got this sort of competitiveness and nastiness to him. 
And I went to watch you guys play uh, uh, against Philadelphia a couple weeks ago, and, and uh, he came through in the end. What, how's, how's he doing as a first pick and as a guy, you know, without, without getting his head pumped up too big if, you, uh, if he listens to this? But give, uh, give us some – give us some listeners some thoughts on, on this kid's talent and, and what, what his sort of strengths are, what you've been impressed with. Yeah, so uh, with Audi, he's got he's got that it factor. You know, it's tough to put your finger on, but you know it. And when you see it, uh, with his his uh, his presence, his demeanor, his confidence—not a cockiness. So, like he's he's got a big heart, and he's uh, he's a really good kid. And uh, you watch him practice, man. Like it's uh, you you start to understand why he's so great. He's uh, and will be great. Um, he's just got like this, uh, a different level of, you know, uh, passion for the game. I, it's funny cause I, Randy was one of the first players I coached here at the Hill and, and, uh, he was a younger guy in our program, but had a lot of the same characteristics. Had just a, like a big heart, ultra competitive yeah. and kind of set the, uh, you know, help set the bar and the culture, uh, at the hill and and then um i remember Adi as a kind of the pudgy younger brother yeah. and uh <laughs> it had been some years since i had seen Adi, and uh and he and then, and then he had sprouted up and it's like holy uh and watching him play and and my brother had coached him you know in junior a lacrosse and getting to kind of see him first first saying there and patrick would uh you know uh just Again, it, it was he's a he's kind of got that he, he's a winner, you know. Like he's um, winning, he'll be a guy where winning kind of finds him because of just his competitive spirit, and um, and so it, it's been fun. I think he's a young guy, and I think he's uh, you can see that he's maturing. He's um, you know I think we have some good people around him uh, on the seals that are you know. Uh, no doubt. Yeah, kind of showing the by that guy's skill set. The way he shoots the ball, not many people can shoot it like that. No, no, it's it's yeah, it's, oh, it's so sick. Yeah, in a lot of different ways, and you can you know he shoots a ball so well, he can take it to the net, and and uh, you know, but I think that's again his competitive uh, fire yeah. is kind of what makes him different. It's kind of what makes him special. Yeah, I totally agree, Brody. I I really want to hear more about the Hill Academy. You've built um, an absolute powerhouse of a lacrosse program. I think there's a ton of people that would like to know more about your school and your program. Um, can you give us a little bit of a history on on how it came to be, how it came to be, and, and where you at with the program now? Yeah, no, it's been it, it was somewhat random and and a little bit serendipitous. I, I think the timing where um, my brother and I had just graduated and we were, we were back home, kind of pursuing our own careers. Uh, my parents, as I mentioned, both with uh, with an education background, um, nearing that retirement stage, but not really ready to retire. And and so, um, you know, through our background and 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 different influences, and and uh, you know, uh, you know, as I mentioned, my experience down at at Salisbury, and and uh, we felt like there was a demand for something like this up here, and and you know, providing a school that really has a healthy balance and a healthy relationship between academics and athletics. And so we dove in, you know, it was, uh, people always, you know, kind of scratch their heads and ask, you know, how do you start a school? What's yeah. that process like? You know, it's, it was a pretty, uh, rigorous, uh, you know, an intense, you know, process to go through, um, you know, I think even a little bit surreal at times, but um, we just, you know, I, a lot of credit goes to my, to my, uh, to my father for, for, um, you know, having that kind of courage to do it and uh, to put so much on the line to, to do it. Um, and so we took it step by step and it was, what we found is, you know, we started to attract some, some great students, you know, some great people and, and that's really where it started to take off is that that really had like a snowball effect, right? Where, um, you know, I think back to, you know, I mentioned Randy Stats, Ryan Burnham, the Noble Brothers, you know, a couple of our coaches we currently have on staff, Kyle Calais, uh, you know, Luke Magnon, Riley O'Connor, you know, Kyle Jackson. These are, these are great people and, 
you know, not, not just high level lacrosse players, but they're great people and they were committed to their academics. And so um, those great people just attracted more great people. And so it was really, you know, um, incremental growth and, and uh, you know, uh, it's flown by. I get, we were in our 13th year and, and uh, a lot has changed. We've been able to do more and offer more as we've been able to grow our enrollment, but uh, really, you know, the, uh, the core values remain the same and, and there's that still kind of that distinct feel to it and culture to it that we hope will be, uh, be there forever. It's awesome. Um, so how many students total these days at the Hill? So just, uh, just over uh, 200 students. And how many lacrosse players? So there, there's, uh, there's 90 boys uh, lacrosse players, and then there's uh, 20 girl lacrosse play, female lacrosse players. So it's, it's really a neat dynamic that way. We have students from all over North America in our lacrosse program. So it's, uh, you see that competitive interaction um, that's, that's not exclusive to the lacrosse field. You see it. Um, you know, it's interesting, uh, you know, examining the and listening to a recent podcast on the U.S. National Development Program for Hockey, uh, where they produced, you know, some some recent high level NHL players like Jack Eichel and, and Austin Matthews, Matthew Tuchuk. Um And that interaction, you know, amongst like minded people and that environment that's that's created there is really such a big advantage that I see here. And uh, so, um, yeah, it, you know, when you have someone from Whitby, Ontario, competing with uh, someone from North Carolina to Colorado to California, um, some of the best teams that I've been a part of, too, have always had that cool combination of some American players and Canadian players and native players. And that's what we've, we've been um, we've been able to have here at the Hill. So it makes for a neat dynamic on the field. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, how, how much lacrosse do the kids get, actually play? Like, uh, well, give us like sort of like season by season, fall, winter, spring, you know, what, how much field, how much box, how much, you know, training, are they playing other sports, stuff like that? So, yeah, it's, it's a, we like to try to have a, a progressive approach that way where um, there's different phases throughout, throughout a given year. Um, there is a little bit more volume of lacrosse and what you might see in a, kind of a traditional high school setting um, where we do play throughout the entire academic calendar. Um, but we do have, have different phases and seasons uh, where initially it's, you know, it's kind of that, it feels like a little bit of a, a fall ball collegiate season that way where there's a lot of team building, um, you know, an emphasis on fundamentals and, and really just establishing um, and, and, you know, getting all the students uh, really acclimated to our program, whether new or returning. And then the, we, we, do, we have an off-season. We have a really from the end of uh, November to the beginning of February, um, students are able to play other sports. Um, and, you know, but we, we still, you know, lacrosse is still kind of working in parallel where we're able to do some skill development, a little bit of box lacrosse. It's different up here because – the majority of our students, um, you know, it's kind of the opposite of the U.S. where they don't have a lot of high-level field lacrosse experience. So it's just trying to um, – we, we don't do as much box here as than you might expect. Um, although that our game and our program and, you know, kind of how we play is heavily influenced by box lacrosse, it's, it's more about – I can remember, you know, some of my early days coaching and going down to, to play Calvert Hall or – boys Latin or some of these high-level programs and thinking wow I've, I've, I've got a lot to learn here in the game you know it's just a different level of um, of field lacrosse than what we're used to up here and so it's um, you know so it's which makes it fun too you know you're teaching different systems and and you know implementing different high-level uh, structure and it's all you know new and exciting for the players and so that's uh uh, you know, neat aspect to it. And then, and then once, you know, February hits, we're, we're into our season and we start, you know, we're going to play a, um, a typical high school schedule. Uh, we travel quite a bit, as you can imagine. And, and so, uh, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of our schedule in, an, in a nutshell. We, we don't practice every day. We, you know, we have, uh, uh, we're on the field, I'd say on average three days a week for an hour. It's a, it's a, we, you know, we like to, uh, 
have have quick um, practices with uh, you know high tempo, a lot of variety in our programming, our strength. It's mandatory for our students to uh, uh, to take part in a strength and conditioning program. So um, there's a good continuity there, and in, in what we're doing, and uh, from a strength and conditioning standpoint, to uh, to what we're doing on the field, and, and so. Um, very much a holistic approach to things here that way. So uh, it, it's fun in that we have the freedom and the flexibility to kind of try to get as close as we can to not, not how it's always been done, but try to look at through the lens of what's optimal and yeah, and, uh, which is exciting. It is. And I think it's good too, because you're not, you know, you're, you're playing a lot, but you're not doing too much. And I think that there's a, there's a fine line there because when you, when you can do as much as you want, sometimes you're like, man, we need to do more. But, but I think keeping pr practices, uh, you know, intense and short is really smart. I think, you know, doing much more than three days a week, uh, you know, starting in September is probably going to be, you know, maybe wear on the players by the time it's, you know, March, April, May hits when you want to be sort of hitting your stride. Um, so. Yeah, that's something, one of the things that we did, we have a, our, our head strength and conditioning coach, as long, along with, we, we have a sports scientist that really monitors volume and what we're doing and, and uh intensity levels and uh you know trying to keep that level of engagement um high you know in terms of the, the you know their motivation and trying to get the most out of players but also you know making sure that we're conscious and aware of the tread on the tires you know and not uh overdoing it that way and and, and taking a closer look what i find is really interesting is just uh you know looking at different movement patterns and and trying to uh um, you know, push the edges of our potential, uh, you know, push the edges of the potential for our players and do it in a healthy, productive way. For an American coming up, I think you said you have around 12 Americans out of your around 90 athletes, men's lacrosse players, boys lacrosse players. Um, for an American to come up to the hill, um, you say you don't play a ton of box, but you guys play some box. But then again, most of what you're doing is very box across influenced and in some ways probably box across oriented in the way that you guys play. Do you feel like this gives the American player a huge advantage to come up and learn how to play the way with and against Canadians and through the coaching from Canadian box across oriented type of coaches? I think so. I think, um, again, through, through a little bit of that interaction amongst their teammates and just picking up those kind of the, the, the some of the, those subtleties and, and kind of the skill level, the fin you know, the finishing that we see a lot, uh, you know, uh, from, from a lot of our players, but, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I do think so. And, and just, you see the, the, the game, you know, like um, ultimately we just want all of our players prepared, you know, and, and, and experiencing a lot of different situations and, and uh, you know, building their kind of overall game IQ. Right. And so um, trying to trying to, you know, put them in good situations where they're going to have success based on on their skill set. And so, um, you know, I, I think I think it has served uh, our, our American students well to. And it goes both ways. Like I really, you know, I think our Canadian players really are influenced by by that American background too, and it's a it's a great blend. And so we like to have a lot of variety in what we're doing, you know, particularly offensively, and in um, some of our system and our sets to really uh, kind of take advantage of that. But um, and and a lot of a lot of our American students end up playing in the summer like your son has, right? And they see that. You know, a lot of their peers are playing high-level box across, and so they, you know, they'll stay and, and play. And, and uh, you know, I, one of our seniors, Josh Sawada from North Carolina, you know, he's played, um, you know, in Calgary and, and gotten good. So you see that – you see that bit of a, a blend uh, in his game as well. So, um, yeah. The one thing you got to make sure you don't do, in, in memory of our great friend Dave Huntley, is start developing American-Canadians. <laughs> yeah, when he goes off, you know, Dave goes off on rants. I don't think it was quite as dire as he would he would make it out to be. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I think at its core here, and people know this, and I think it's I see it, you know, at, at very young stages. Like my my nephew uh, Finn, who's a he's a young 
uh, lacrosse player who's uh, almost nine years old. You watch him, that you know, he, he plays on one of the top teams in Ontario, and you watch that level lacrosse, box lacrosse, and it's it's a lot has changed, and there's definitely a field influence, but a lot has remained the same too, and, and that's what makes us unique and different up here. And so, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't I, yeah, I don't think it's, uh, you know, <laughs> I think the, I think the influence of field across has been a good thing and has been able to, uh, you know, but to, to Dave's point and his fear is that we just don't lose touch and, and, you know, and keep that connection. Cause it's, it's how we're able to compete, you know, on, on the international stage and produce all these great players is through that, through our, our background and uh, box across. We got to continue to embrace that. I was just, I did a podcast last week with Steve Stenerson and there are 850,000, lacrosse players in the u.s and we were kind of guessing i don't know maybe there's 150,000 in canada i was talking with marty o'neill the other day and he said i don't know i think it's more like 70,000 you know but when you think about the model that you guys have with box lacrosse and back to how many pros came off that orangeville st Catharines game from 1998 or how many pros are on my son's you know will be or are now from my my son's youth team in St. Catharines of all those like 98s, 99s, you know, 97s, you know, Latrell Harris is an old teammate of his and a teammate of yours. And it's just insane what the box lacrosse does for you. So if you are an aspiring player, you're crazy not to try to get up to Canada. And one way to do it would be to go to the Hill and get a chance to play with these guys. Because the thing is in the U S people won't ever throw you the ball based on their idea of what is open and what's covered. And up here, it's like, you know, if your stick's open, the ball's in your stick, and it's in the back of the net. Well, it was, it was interesting, We to that point, we had a, a Jeff T. A Jeff T. has good chemistry with, with, you know, almost anybody that he plays with. But him and Kyle Marr really had a good connection here and, and two, two very different, uh, you know, lacrosse backgrounds. But I think it really – you know, they, they helped each other, you know, and, and uh, really complimented each other well. And I think that Kyle, you can kind of see, although he had, you know, I think growing up, uh, you know, around the Albany program, he's always influenced by Canadian players and yeah. you can see that in his game. But, uh, you know, you're right. I think he kind of, he, he was a great fit that way. And, and uh, you know, and he, you look at him, he's gone, you know, this past, this, this past summer, he went and played senior lacrosse out in, out in British Columbia and, um, you know, so it, uh, yeah, as you said, um, I think of guys like even like a Joe Walters, uh, you know, guys like that. And even at the higher level in the, in the NCAA, you're, you're seeing it, guys like Tom Schreiber and, and, uh, Kieran McArdle and guys like that. It's, and, and watch them, you know, even, even Paul Rabel, when he, his game went to another level after years in the NLL, right? You can just see a, a lot more of a complete player with his, with his skill and his, his off-ball play. So, yeah, it's awesome. Where do you – last question for you. Where do you see uh, the NLL going and sort of the expansion? And where do you see, you know, along those lines, where do you see the opportunities for, uh, for more field, field across players and Americans to be able to, like, make – make it in the NLL like the Shrivers and the McCardles? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's an exciting time for the game. I think with, um, you know, the PLL uh, bursting onto the scene and uh, creating some havoc there in a good way, I think, and, and uh, you know, uh, having providing more options and, and uh, more opportunity. Like I think of some, a young lacrosse player like uh, Jeff Teed or, Chris Cluche just coming into their career like there's they got a lot of a lot ahead of them um you know and, and you can see that there's in the NLL great growth expansion and and um and now with the leagues the MLL PLL and, and NLL the schedules finally jive you know and they're they're um there's there's uh not that conflict that we saw um and so that you're gonna you're gonna you know have more and more players be able to play both and, and, uh, which is a, which is a, a great thing. And, and, uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic. It seems, um, you know, like the game is, uh, kind of trending in, in the right direction. And, uh, you know, if, if for a while, for a while in my career there in professional cross kind of felt like it was, 
treading treading water you know and now I, I definitely see it uh, you know on the cusp of making some breakthroughs here which is really exciting awesome well Brody thank you so much for taking the time to join me on this podcast it was uh, great to hear about uh, your your journey and about the Hill Academy and some of our mutual friends and to be able to talk about and laugh about hunts so uh, uh, best of luck with the seals best of luck with the hill and uh, we'll be in touch soon Thanks, Jamie. Had fun. All right, brother. I'll be in touch, man. The Phil Lacrosse Podcast is brought to you in part by the JM3 Lacrosse Academy. This 13-week online program is designed to teach cutting-edge lacrosse skills and IQ. Athletes will learn dozens of new techniques, creative drills, X's and O's, and most importantly, how to integrate it all into their game. For more information, go to www.jm3academy.thinkific.com.